Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessed week that you gave all of us. Thank you for seeing all of us safely through the past week. And thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to come and study together right now. We just ask for your presence to please be with us, to lead us, and to guide us. Help us, O Lord, to understand your word. And I pray that you'd speak to us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the study that we have for this evening, we're continuing the parables of Jesus. And if you missed uh, the previous studies, you can go back and look through the playlist there. You should be able to find um, all the parables that are listed out there. And we have been going through systematically all the parables that Jesus has been sharing and teaching. And tonight we're going to be looking at one that is quite controversial out there in the Christian world. It is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And, you know, this parable does have a little bit of a background to it. And it starts off there in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13. Luke 16 verse 13, the Bible says this. No man can serve two masters. Pardon me, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus says that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and money. We will either hate the one and love the other, or we'll love God and or and, and hate money. So, you, you know, we, we, we can't love both. If we love money, if we love the riches, which is what the word mammon means, it will wean our affections from God. The two just do not go together. And this is the conclusion that Jesus makes. However, when the Pharisees heard it though, how did they react? Look at Luke chapter 16 and verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. The Pharisees, when they heard it, the Bible says they derided Jesus. They, they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. They mocked him because obviously they did not agree with the conclusion that he was making. And it was clear that they were in a religious position, but I guess it seems that they were the ones that were chasing after the riches of the world, money and, and the gold and the tinkling of all these precious jewels and gems, the things that so many worldly people cared for, they cared for and wished for as well, rather than eternal and heavenly things. So, you know, we know this because even the temple, it had been turned into a marketplace where animals were sold for exorbitant prices, for really expensive prices, just so that these religious people could make a living and I guess a more comfortable living at that. But how does Jesus respond before he actually launches into the parable? Obviously, he disagrees with them. They're on two opposite extremes. But what does Jesus say? Look at this. Luke 16 and verse 15. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. What did Jesus say? He said, to them that, you know, they might think otherwise and try to justify themselves and their position in the sight of men, but, but God knew 
their hearts. God knows all hearts. And who are those that are highly esteemed? It is the rich people of the world. It is those that had the extra money, the wealth that were living in luxury and abundance. And Jesus said, these are the sorts of people that God says is an abomination in His eyes. Now look, let's clear something up here real quick. Not every rich man is an abomination in God's eyes. Yet Jesus said, riches and God do not go together. Why? You see, this is where now we will jump into the parable and we will dig deeper into this conclusion that Jesus has seemingly made that I'm sure some of us probably who has maybe an abundance of wealth or or more than the average or you're living very comfortably, you might disagree. But look at what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable. So now let's go to Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 21. This is what the Bible says. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at the gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So immediately we see in this parable a contrast between two groups of people, one rich, one poor. We have the name of the poor man. His name is what? It's Lazarus. And we have no idea who the rich man is. Um, We don't know his name. We don't know his background. We know a little bit of detail that we're going to look at in a minute. But, you know, it seems like Jesus is just going to tell us why the rich man is not saved, why we can't serve God and our riches, right? So remember this because um, this is the conclusion that Jesus made at the very beginning when we looked at the background, right? You can't serve God and you can't serve mammon. So it's obviously fitting that we look at the rich man. So let's continue. Let's continue reading this parable now. Verse 22 to 24. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, friends, we know that this is a parable. Why? Because, look, if all the people that are saved, like Lazarus, they go to heaven, where does the Bible say that they go, actually? They go into Abraham's bosom, right? So, Lazarus, he was carried up to heaven. He went into Abraham's bosom. He must have a pretty big bosom or a chest, which is what the bosom is. Uh, it, It doesn't make sense that Every, every person that is saved that goes to heaven will be in Abraham's bosom. That is not heaven, surely, right? So we know that this has to be a parable from a few, few factors. This is not certainly something that absolutely, definitely happens. But what else do we see here? What happens when a person dies? We know actually from Scripture that they do not go straight to heaven or straight to hell even though this parable seems to indicate it. 
God is trying to teach us something from this parable, but it's not about heaven or hell or what happens after a person dies. We see other scriptures that are very clear, like Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 that says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither, <clears throat> pardon me, neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. You see, when the person dies, they are unconscious. They are dead. They are sleeping. They don't go to heaven or hell. And throughout Scripture, it points out that actually when a person dies, they're simply asleep. And friends, this is simply another study for another time. I'm drawing a conclusion for which I have don't have enough um, text to give you, to prove to you. But, you know, if you want to, you can look at another sermon that we're going to link to in the future that will show you actually a whole study up upon death because many people are actually interested in the study of death because that's what we all face. And this is what all the major religions out there differ in and even within our Christian denominations, many people have different opinions and understandings of what actually happens when a person dies. But remember, this study is not about death. This parable is about those that are rich and why they most likely won't be able to make it to heaven. Remember, God and mammon, God and riches, they don't go together. You either love one and hate the other, or cling to one and despise the other. These two do not go together. And Jesus is trying to illustrate this lesson here in this parable, not death. So coming back to the parable real quick, we know that what? The rich man, he ends up in hell. He's in torment. He looks up and he sees Lazarus in heaven in Abraham's bosom, right? And so the rest of this parable, interestingly enough, well, actually, probably not interesting. We, we, we kind of already know. It focuses on the rich man. Lazarus does not say a single word. And we don't know what happens to him and what heaven is like. All we see in the rest of this parable is the conversation that this rich man has with Abraham. And yes, the rich man, he is in hell. He's being tormented, so to speak. And Abraham is in heaven. So look, what is the reason? What is the reason that the Bible gives in this parable as to why the rich man ended up in hell? Well, let's keep reading. Luke 16, 25 to 26. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, he received what? Evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. So look, looking at this passage here, it seems to, to suggest, it seems to indicate that the reason why this rich man ended up in hell is because he was rich. And does it really mean that every rich man is going to hell because they received good things in this life? It, uh, is, is 
God trying to tell us we're not allowed to enjoy life here on this earth. We're not allowed to have any creature comforts. We, we got to make life as miserable as possible for ourselves. No, it's not that. But that's not the situation, you see, that is given at the beginning before both of them die. Remember, at the beginning of the parable, we actually see the rich man and Lazarus already. And it's not just simply he enjoyed the finer things in life and Lazarus didn't. And that's why he ended up in hell and Lazarus in heaven. No, it doesn't mean that every poor man is going to heaven as well. What actually happened on earth while these two were alive? Let's go back and read this again in Luke 16, 19 to 21. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. Doesn't sound like anything wrong there, right? Let's continue. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So what do we see here? The rich man he actually saw at his gate Lazarus the beggar. He was sitting on the floor outside his house, outside his gate, outside his mansion, whatever it is, and the rich man, he never fed him. He didn't even give him the crumbs that fell from his table, the crumbs that he could not be bothered to eat. He did not even feed him with the crumbs. And how do we know that? The text says there what? He desired to be fed with the crumbs. Obviously, he never got it. Lazarus stood just wanted the leftovers, but never got it. So this rich man, he saw his fellow brother in need, but he never helped him. And that was the reason why the rich man ended up in hell, according to these texts, you see. In this parable, we don't know what Lazarus did and the reason why he ended up in heaven. He is not our focus. It doesn't mean that every poor person, remember, is going to heaven. Every beggar is going to end up in heaven. I'm sure that there are going to be some that will end up in hell. But we are given this indication as to why the rich man ended up in hell. He had a poor person sitting at his gate and he never ever fed him from the leftovers, the scraps that fell from his table. You see, what was really wrong with this rich man? What was his problem? James 2 verse 5. Let's read here. James 2 verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? You see, friends, it is the poor, the Bible says here in James 2, 5, it is the poor that is rich in faith, and those that are rich, they rarely have any faith. Why? Because, it's obvious, they trust to their riches so much, they don't feel the need to have to exercise faith. They have riches that they can rely on, and so they don't have to have much need for a future immortal life. All they, have they, all they have that they need is on this earth already. And so it is these riches that, that makes them covetous, that makes them lose their focus, that makes them, even in a sense, selfish. So this rich man, he didn't have faith. 
But how important is faith, friends? Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace that you're saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God. So we are saved by, by grace through faith. So in essence, we are really saved by faith because faith is the arm that lays hold on grace to bring that blessing down to us. And so this rich man, he didn't exercise his faith. And as a result, he was not saved. And how do we know that the rich man had an issue with his faith? Well, James makes it very clear. We see a few passages here in James chapter 2. In verse 17 of James 2, it says, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Faith must have what? It must have works. Verse 20 of James 2, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And James chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Three times, three times in James chapter 2, this sentiment, this phrase, this understanding, this teaching is repeated. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You know, faith, it has to go with works. It's not enough just to say you have faith. And you see, the, the rich man's lack of works. What work? Feeding the poor man, feeding the beggar that was sitting right there at his gate. He didn't have to go out and look for who were those poor people out there. No, he had one sitting right at his gate. And every day as he ate, he didn't even think about this poor man. And so his works were non-existent. Now look, we really know nothing about Lazarus's life. We don't know how he made it to heaven, and that is not the point of the story. But we do know that this rich man was a Christian. Do you know how we know that? You see, when he was in hell, he knew Abraham. And not only did he know Abraham, when he looked up and, and he saw Lazarus sitting in the bosom of, of Abraham, he called that to Abraham and he said, Father Abraham. He called him Father so this rich man, he must have been a Jew. He must have been, in today's uh, application, he must have been a Christian. And you see, the problem with the rich man is that he had no good works, which really meant he had no faith because true faith produces the fruit of good works. So he saw this poor man sitting on the floor under his table or at his gate. He was, you know, there was no missing him. Every time he went out, he would see him. But every day, he did not feed him. He did not do anything to help him. He didn't even give him the crumbs that fell from his table. He had no good works, which showed what? It showed how covetous he was. Remember, the Bible called the Pharisees covetous at the very beginning of this parable. Those Pharisees that were covetous, they, they were the ones that mocked Christ, derided Him. They made fun of Him. And so, remember covetousness. Covetousness isn't simply desiring something that is someone else's and obtaining it by fraud or breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Here, 
in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it has nothing to do with death. It is trying to teach us a lesson of covetousness. The covetousness that we see in the life of the rich man in this parable is what? He had the ability to help somebody even with the overflow of his means, his abundance, his leftovers, something that he was not going to eat. But even then, he didn't do it. Covetousness, having the ability to help somebody and not helping them. You see that? So this rich man, he has this conversation. Coming back to the parable now, we already know why the rich man ended up in hell. But now he's having this conversation with Abraham. And what is his first request? We already read it, but let's read it again. Luke 16, 24, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Friends, what is his first request? His first request was that he might have his life comforted just for a little while. For Abraham to, to talk to Lazarus and say, please send Lazarus that he would dip his finger in some water and touch his tongue with it to cool his tongue so that he could be comforted. Even if it was just a drop, he didn't care. That would have blessed him very much. But Abraham said, look, this is not possible. Why? His fate had been sealed already and no power in earth or in heaven could change his circumstances beside the fact that there was a great gulf between heaven and earth. I mean, heaven and hell. But, you know, that wasn't the point. We're not trying to figure out how, what is the distance between heaven and hell? No. Abraham denies the request of the rich man. And he's trying to show him and trying to tell us as well through this lesson that we see in the parable that what? After we die, our circumstances cannot change anymore. There's no more second chance. Once we pass from the earth's history, there's no more second probation, friends. No more second chance or second choice. All the chances that we have are right now here in this present life. Missed opportunities rarely come back a second time. There's no rewinding the past. And death is that which seals all that we've done and sets it in stone. You see, friends, many of us think that somehow there is an opportunity to change our present circumstances after we've died. That, is, that my friends, is just simply a deception of the devil. We cannot, after we die, change our fate in any way possible. No matter even if the whole world prayed, it would not be possible. I guess except if only we came back to life after we died, right? But once we're in hell, there's no more second chances. And let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this. Because, you know, somehow some of us, we, we, we think that there's a second probation. There's a second chance after we die. And, you know, other religions, we, we think that we can come back from the, the dead as another being or another animal or whatever it is. Or, you know, we, we think that there's a secret rapture and then there's a tribulation. And if we survive it through that tribulation, we, we have a second chance, Right. But there's no such thing. Let me give you an illustration on earth about what I mean by this. You know, many students, they pray even after the exam is over. 
And their prayer request is what? That they will get good grades. So, you know, they'll say things like, praise God, exam is over. Please pray for me that I can get good grades in my exam. Do you know that those kinds of prayers are what we call useless prayers? Yes. And if someone comes up to me and asks, Pastor, can you pray for my grades that I'll get good grades? I would say, look, it's too late. I mean, unless we're asking, uh, you want me to pray and ask God to go and change your grades? If you got bad grades to good grades? I mean, that we're trying to manipulate God, right? <laughs> we're asking Him to do something that is dishonest, that's not, not worthy of what we're asking for, right? We're asking God to change our grades? No. You see, the time to pray for our grades is before the exam, before our assignment is handed in that God would give us wisdom, that God would help us not to be lazy, that God would give us understanding and help us to remember the things that we faithfully study. And you see, that's that's the thing that I pray for when people ask me, Pastor, Pastor, please pray for my exam that's coming up. And I say, God, please help this person to help them to remember what they have faithfully put into their minds, you know, give them a good memory, you know. So I, I don't pray to to supplement the effort that you should put in, no. But after the exam is done, there's no point praying. Once pen has been put to paper and turned in, the fate is sealed and no amount of praying and fasting is going to change the outcome. The only change that praying and fasting will accomplish after the exam is finished is that your heart might be humble to accept whatever grade that you get, even if you possibly fail. Are you with me? So, The next time you ask someone to pray for your grades after your exam is over, remember what I've shared with you here. Because God might just simply prepare your heart to receive the bad grade that you're going to get because you didn't put the effort in beforehand to study. You know, many of us, we we know that um, when we sit at the exam, we kind of know whether we've done well or not. I I think we can all kind of gauge whether we're going to do well because of the confidence that we have in the exam question, whether we know it ourselves or not, right? I mean, I've gone through many exams and I wasn't a good student when I was younger, but I've gone through many exams where I've just simply guessed. I've guessed the the answers and I knew that if I got a good grade, it's only by luck. And and even those multiple choice answers, I'm glad that the answers are there, but I'm telling you, if I get a good grade, it's just by luck because I know whether I knew the answer or not. You see that? So, the time to pray should have been before. Ask God to help us to be more hardworking, more, 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 l- less lazy, right? To, to study more and to not play so much. So the time to pray should have been before the exact, the exam, pardon me. Instead of going out all day with our friends or watching TV or whatever it is or playing around. So, you know, that was the, exactly the type of regret this rich man was having. And Abraham told him, it's too late. It's too late, I can't do it. And so you can see that many of us actually, we have the thinking of the rich man. We've done something wrong. We know it. But we want to get a get out of jail free card to turn our circumstances into something good and more favorable, something that maybe even to the point that we don't deserve. But God tells us from this parable that the time to change your circumstances is now while you are living and breathing 
and not in the future after you have died. But the rich man, he's not done yet. That was his first request. And after having been rejected by Abraham, his first request, he has one more. What is it? Luke 16, 27 to 28. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. What is the second request of the rich man? He is asking for Lazarus to be sent back, come back from the dead, so that he could warn his family about making sure to avoid hell, to avoid this place of torment, to make sure that they live a life that is sober, full of faith and good works, so they don't come into this place which is just so horrible. And how does Abraham reply his second request? Look at this. Luke 16, 29, Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have who? They have Moses and the prophets. And Abraham said, that's enough. They don't need to have Lazarus sent back from the dead. No, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And you see, friends, what is so interesting about Moses and the prophets. Well, let's go to another text found in John 1, 17. What is so interesting about Moses and the prophets? Well, Moses first. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Moses is connected to the Ten Commandments, and we kind of know that already, right? So they have the Ten Commandments, and they have the prophets. Well, what about the rest of the prophets? Well, that's very simple. You see, the rest of the prophets, they wrote the Scripture. Holy men of God, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, they wrote Scripture. They wrote the Bible. So what Abraham is saying to the rich man is, look, they don't need Lazarus to come back from the dead. They have the Ten Commandments and they have the Bible. It is enough. It is what? It is enough. It's more than enough. You see, when you read Moses and the prophets, what will you find, friends? What will you find? In John 145, uh, pardon me, John 145, the Bible says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What is it that we can find in Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, we can find Jesus. We can find the Savior. We can find the Messiah. And that is enough. If you go back to John 1.17, it says Jesus brought what? He brought grace. He brought truth. Enough for us to be saved because we're saved by grace through faith. And so Abraham is telling the rich man, we don't need a son Lazarus. They have Moses. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the prophets. All the scripture. This is enough for them to find Jesus to be saved. It's enough. But how does a rich man reply when Mo uh, Abraham tells him they have Moses and the prophets and it's enough? What does he say? How does he reply? In Luke 16 and verse 30, he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. 
He's like, no, no, it's not enough. It's not enough. If Lazarus would just go back to them coming back from the dead, they will change. They will reform their wicked ways. They will repent. They won't do evil anymore. They'll change their lives. They'll be sober all. They'll be holy and righteous. They'll be sanctified. He's saying what? The Bible is not enough for people to believe and to avoid the fires of hell. That's what the rich man is saying. What do they need instead? They need a miracle. They need a sign in order to repent. They need something supernatural to show them that they got to change, that will kind of tickle their senses, you know? The Bible, oh, the Bible. You know, I, I hear this so much even in today. I mean, the Bible's elementary. We've got to look at something else. We've got to study something else. And so many people are convicted about the truth, not because of the truth, but because of some supernatural event that happened to them. Someone in their family got possessed, and no, so now they're scared and they, 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 they're convicted that there's a real God. No, friends, that's not good enough. It's not. But you know, many of us, so many of us are like that. The Bible's too boring. We need something to catch our senses. We need something that will speak to us so clearly. Not the Bible, no, that's not clear enough. But that's not what changes us, friends. It's not miracles but rather it's Moses and the prophets. It's the Bible. Yet these things get our attention, but it's not what converts us, friends. It's not what changes us. It's not what brings in long-lasting change on our character to make us better people. What strengthens our faith is the Bible. Do you know that the poor man in the Bible, in the parable here, pardon me, is called Lazarus? Do you know why? Because in the Bible, when Jesus was alive, there really was a man named Lazarus. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, they were very close to Jesus. And during Jesus' time, Lazarus really did die. And he was dead for four days. And Jesus really did come and bring him back from the dead. You see, by the fourth day, the flesh begins to decompose and it was well and truly, without a shadow of a doubt, that this person really is dead. Jesus intentionally came late and let Lazarus be dead for four days and only then he resurrected to prove to them that this man really was dead his body had been decomposing already. It was stinky, it was smelly, right? But Jesus in John 11 really did resurrect a man by the name of Lazarus to come back from the dead. And do you know what happened when you read John 11? After Jesus resurrected him and he came out from the tomb and you know all the people witnessed this, this was the crowning act of all of Jesus' miracles. It wasn't walking on water. It wasn't feeding the 5,000. It wasn't healing a blind man, even who was blind from birth. It wasn't any of, any of these things, a crippled man. Jesus did many, many miracles, and yet people never believed. Isn't that so interesting? But yet here it comes to this point where he really does resurrect a man from the dead. And you, do you know how the Pharisees react? The scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, all these people. Do you know how they reacted when they saw Lazarus? living, alive, breathing, really came back from the dead. You know what happened? In John 11, look at what it says here. 
then from that day forth, speaking about that day that Lazarus was resurrected, they took counsel together for to put him to death. After Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, after being dead for four days, the priests gathered together and took counsel together and decided once and for all, not that Jesus is Messiah and we've got to follow him, they decided once and for all, he's got to die. Can you believe that? You would have thought that this would be the turning point to convince them to follow Christ, but quite the contrary. It became the nail in his coffin, the final nail in his coffin. Friends, miracles are not enough to convince people to live righteously. It's not. It's not enough to change their evil habits. What we need is the writings of the scriptures, the prophets, the Bible. We need that more than anything else. But somehow, you know, we, maybe we got too accustomed to just hearing some stories here and there and the Bible just got so boring and it hasn't convicted us not realizing that this quiet moments of spending time in the Bible is what really changes us. You see, how does Father Abraham in the parable finally reply? He says in Luke 16, 31, he said to them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. This is exactly what Father Abraham said to the rich man. And today he's saying that to us as well. People, we, we pray for signs. We pray for miracles. And still, we don't change because signs and miracles are not the changing agent in our life. The Word of God is. You know, the rich man, he asked for water to cool his tongue, even in hell. And in hell, he still wanted that blessing. Abraham said no. And you know, friends, we only get one chance in this life. And when that rich man, he died, he couldn't get the blessing from heaven. But don't let anyone deceive you, friends. You're saved by grace through faith. Where does this grace come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. That change in your life is a result of you exercising your faith. And the only time to build that faith is right now, while you're alive, right here, while your heart is beating, while you're listening to the sound of my voice and watching this video or whatever it is, right now, while you're alive, you have the opportunity to open the scripture to strengthen your faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, hearing by Moses and the prophets. And so the challenge that we face today is really spending time with Jesus because true faith will work. The rich man, he was a Christian. He probably went to church every week but his faith was not deeply rooted in his life and in Scripture. It wasn't his priority. And we know this because of how he treated the poor man under his table or that sat at his gate. You know, today we have Moses and the prophets and even more. Don't wait for a miracle to establish your faith because at the end time, we're told in Revelation 13, there will be miracles that will deceive people there will be miracles, and the devil is capable of performing such miracles. We can't, we must not base our faith on signs and wonders. We must base, base our faith on a thus saith the Lord. And in order to do that, 
we got to make time. Time to spend with Jesus. And we've got to think about that today, right here, right now. Because if we fail to plan, we plan to fail. And yes, we've got to make plans to spend time with God. It doesn't come naturally. If it came so naturally, all of us would be saved because all of us would have strong faith by spending time with Jesus every day. But it doesn't. So few will be saved at the end of time. The wicked that are outside the gates of Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that they are like the sea, the sand in the sea. It's numberless. It's innumerable because so many of us, we were thinking to be better but we never made the effort to spend time with Jesus at all. Yes, we got to make effort. It's not that this effort will save you, but we got to take time to spend with Jesus if we really want to build our faith today. Don't think that, you know, spending time with Jesus, our faith is like our hormones. You know, at the right time, you know, now is not the time I don't like a girl, but maybe in the future I'll, I'll like a girl, you know. I think girls are yucky and icky. You know, that's when you're 10 years old, right? Those hormones haven't kicked in yet. And we think, oh, you know, with, with age, you know, guys will begin to look at girls differently. And then that's what really does happen, yes. And girls likewise with guys, but not so with faith. It's not hormones raging through us that one day we're going to get old and we're going to be 40 years old and now's the time to settle down. Now's the time to think, take God seriously. Friends, don't wait for that day to come because it may never come. It may never come we got to make that decision today, right now, to spend time in His Word, to have a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus. That's the effort that we've got to put in today, friends. May God help us to that end, that truly we might have the faith of Jesus at the end of time that will weather any storm, no matter what the devil throws at us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, please help us strengthen our faith, strengthen our resolve to spend time with you. Help us to decide to make that time to be with you, Lord. May you guide us and may you lead us. May you sanctify us, Lord. And may you strengthen our faith today that we truly would make an effort to really spend time reading the Scriptures. Help us not to be deceived, thinking that it will come automatically, that we've we got to have a taste for it, we've got to have a desire for it, otherwise we shouldn't put in any effort right now. But Lord, help us to make that effort and that priority right now, here today. Lead and guide us to that end, Father. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be in heaven. We want to live a life of fulfillment. We want to live a life that will be a blessing to everybody around us. And so, Lord, we just surrender our lives again to you today. Please, guide and lead us is my earnest plea and prayer. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org